Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning, whether you're here in the room with us, and we have a really good group, a good-sized group this morning. Um, it's kind of weird to talk about good size being large these days, but it's great to see some familiar faces out, and also welcome to all of you who are online. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Isaiah. Today is the second day of Advent, and we usually think of Advent as a season of waiting for Christ to be born, and that's what it is. It leads up to Christmas. And the prophet Isaiah is the perfect guide for us at this time of year because he points so insistently to the coming of the Messiah, the one who would rescue God's people. Isaiah is quoted more than any other Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's quoted 413 times to be exact. That's even more than the Psalms. And we heard it this morning already in our call to worship. We heard from the passage we'll be reading in a moment, we heard, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now those might be the most famous lines in all of Isaiah. They're words that anticipate the advent, the arrival of God in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we have an opportunity to look at them more carefully and to look at them in context. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to plant your word in our hearts and our minds. Because, Lord, we want to be growing. We want to be living. We want more of your abundant life. We want to remain in the darkness on the edges. We want to come into the center of your blessing. So would you show us today who you are and draw us into your amazing community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, the Lord humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness 
from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I went to Stone Road Mall this week for the first time in over a year. I wasn't sure what to expect. It was crowded, actually. I had to return some clothing. And when I got to the store where I was to return these items, I saw a really long lineup. And I was a little worried, I have to say. But when I got even closer, I realized the lineup wasn't for Roots, where I was headed. It was for a different store. The lineup actually went down the hallway into an empty store where it looped around and came out, and then someone was sending people, when they got to the front of the line, across the hall to Bath and Body Works. I was curious, so I asked what was going on. Turns out it was the annual Bath and Body Works candle sale. This only happens once a year. Did you know about it? You've missed it now, I hate to tell you. On this occasion, Bath and Body Works sell their famous three-wick scented candles at half price or less. I did some research when I got home. I didn't know what was going on, though, when I was in Stone Road Mall, so I expressed surprise to the person I'd asked what the lineup was for. I expressed surprise that people would wait so long in line just for candles. And the person I was talking to seemed pretty unimpressed at my ignorance. But she was good enough to inform me that, first of all, candles are amazing. <laughs> Secondly, they're a symbol of hope. And thirdly, we need all the hope we can get these days. I was like, wow, I think I just got a three-point sermon in Stone Road Mall. And I agreed with her. And you know, I think the prophet Isaiah would agree with her also. Because that is exactly what we get in this passage, which is really an incredible poem. We get a sign of hope. We catch a glimpse of what's coming, the hope that God has in store for us. And it's a hope that is at least three things. It's unexpected, it's radiant, and it's a gift. And the G in gift is capitalized. God's hope comes to us as an unexpected, radiant gift like no other. But we start in verse 1 of this passage with gloom and distress. There's darkness and then there's even deep darkness. And if you go back a page to chapter 8, it's even worse. In this series, we're looking at parts of Isaiah that point to the coming of Jesus in a particular way. But you've really got to read more than those highlights, or you might actually think that this is a pretty hopeful, shiny, happy book of the Bible. It's not. So why is Israel so sad? One reason. Assyria, this incredibly evil and brutal and powerful empire, was looking to expand. And this map will give you an idea of what Israel was facing. You can see the darker green represents Assyria at an earlier stage. And then the lime green, what better color to illustrate the expanse of an evil empire, right? The lime green represents Assyria at its height. 
And so Israel, especially later in that progression, was surrounded. And Judah, the southern kingdom, would eventually become an island in a sea of lime green, of Assyrian threat. And we know exactly when Isaiah wrote this part of his book, and the book of Isaiah is notoriously difficult to date, but here he mentions in the past God humbled Zebulun and Naphtali. And those were the first two tribes of Israel that fell to Assyria in 733 BC. And as you can see on this next map, they were part of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. They're right at the top there in kind of orange. What is that color? Someone help me out. Is that ochre? It could be ochre. And purple, the purple I've got. So right at the top there, you've got Naphtali and Zebulun, and they fell first to Assyria. And they were, because of their location, they were most vulnerable to an attack from the north, and they were wiped out. But this passage actually begins with a promise that there will be no more gloom. But the source of that hope is going to be totally unexpected. It's identified as located in Galilee. Now that, that would have been incredibly shocking to people hearing this for the first time. Everyone would have expected that God would have started in Jerusalem if he was going to show up, if he was going to do something big. Because that's where you found the temple, that's where you found the glory of God, that's where the things of God were represented. But no, here, the prophet points to Galilee. He honors Galilee, Galilee in the middle of nowhere, Galilee of the nations, which means Galilee of the Gentiles. So it wasn't even Jewish. But that's what God does. We saw that recently in the book of Ruth. He comes from the outside. Jesus wasn't born into a wealthy family but into poverty. He was not born into high status, but to a pregnant, unwed, teenage peasant girl. Jesus had none of the marks that tell you that someone will be successful. He was a person of no consequence. And so what happened? Into that obscurity came the most influential person in the history of the world. In that weakness, you had the greatest power ever seen on this planet. The point is that the glory that was going on in the manger came unexpectedly. No one saw it. The world doesn't recognize true greatness. The world goes after what is superficial more often than not. But God is different. God loves to bring salvation into your life in ways that you would never have expected. So what is the spirit of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas? Well, here's one way to define it. I'm going to use J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf gives Frodo and his hobbit friends a letter to take to the inn, the Prancing Pony in Bree, where they're going to meet Aragorn, the coming king, known as Strider, this guy who looks like a vagabond, a bum, or a mercenary, a cutthroat. He has a poem in that letter. 
And one of the lines of the poem is that all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. As far as the Bible is concerned, almost nothing that is gold, true gold, actually glitters. But in our culture, it is always about the glitter, the glittering success stories, the glittering images. Jesus had none of that. And to be shaped by the true meaning of Christmas is to not be blinded by what glitters, to not care so much about what the world values. So here's, here's a practical way of thinking about that. How do you treat people who don't glitter for you? People from nowhere. People who don't have the right accent, who don't dress right, who don't have the right knowledge or the right vocabulary or the right politics. How do you regard them? Literally, how do you look at them? Do you just paternalistically tolerate them and then think you're a good person because you're not despising them openly? Or do you know how to learn from them, how to listen to them, how to respect and even love them? If you do, then you're beginning to be shaped by the Holy Spirit, by what is at the heart of Christmas, because God works through what is unexpected. It's been a while since many of us, maybe all of us, had the experience of walking into a crowded room. You know, one of those moments where you scan all the people and you wonder who you're going to talk to. We've been reflecting for months now on what God is saying to us, individually and as a congregation, through this pandemic. What if he's preparing us for the next time we walk into a crowded room like that? Maybe it'll be the reunion, the happy day when we can freely gather again as a church. Maybe it'll be something at the university you'll be part of, something in your workplace. Who are you going to focus on in that moment? If it's the glittering people, the people who give you something, the people who are easy and comfortable and rewarding, if it's only those people, you're at risk of missing out on Jesus entirely. God does the unexpected, and he works through the unexpected, and through that, he brings peace. That is where justice hits the ground. It's not where it ends, but it is where it begins. How else do we find Isaiah describing God's hope here in this passage? Well, it shines. It brings light. It's radiant. If you think about Advent, even though it features candles and lots of sparkling lights, it's really a season of darkness. This morning, the sun started to rise at 7.40 a.m. That's late. And this afternoon, it will disappear over the horizon at 4.44 p.m. That's early. The darkest day of the year is only two weeks away, and we feel it. It affects us. In December, when my wife Judith walks to catch the 6 a.m. GO train to Toronto, it's a completely different experience for her than at other times of the year. She walks in darkness, and you have to be careful when it's dark, don't you? 
I wanted to go to the library with my daughter Lily this week, and she got home from school, and it was shortly after 4 p.m., and the light was already fading, so we didn't go. In the afternoons these days, we retreat to our homes earlier because there's light. There's comfort in that. It's not just about safety either. It's even more basic. In our world, light and life always go together. What would happen if the sun suddenly went out? We would all die, every one of us. That's literal darkness. But these days, there's also the darkness of the pandemic that we have to deal with. We're isolated, we're suffering in many different ways. But the darkness in verse 2 is something else. When it says deep darkness, a more accurate, accurate translation of that would be the death shadow. It, it's hard for us, of course, to relate to the threat of Assyrian armies, but all of us face the darkness of the death shadow. As of last month, I've been with you at Courtright for 10 years, along with my family. And we've changed. I've changed. I came here with 2020 vision. And now, I can't do without these things. I came here with a svelte physique, dare I say. These things are relative. Perhaps among Presbyterian clergy, I was svelte. Let's just say 10 years later, I'm significantly less svelte. What happened? The death shadow is creeping up on me. My eyes are degenerating, and the rest of my body is not far behind. It's happening to all of us. Once you're in your 40s or 50s, it's much more pronounced and it accelerates. But even by the time you hit your 20s, your skin is already aging, the numbers of neurons in your brain are declining, your metabolism is slowing, and when you hit 30, your muscles actually begin to break down. Now, wasn't this sermon supposed to be about hope? Maybe you're asking yourself. Well, I'm, I'm getting there. My grandma lived to be 92. She had cancer at the end of her life. And I recently came across the eulogy I wrote for her funeral in 1994. It was in a word-perfect document. This is what I wrote. I wrote, this past December, before traveling down to Boston for Christmas, I accompanied... I accompanied Grandma to Princess Margaret Hospital where she was undergoing radiation therapy. And as we prepared to leave that gloomy hospital waiting room after her appointment was over, she stopped at the receptionist's desk, and with a twinkle in her eye that was so typical of her, she announced in a clear, strong voice, I really do hope that this radiation treatment will end up making me radiant. <laughs> and instantly, the mood in that room changed. Everyone broke into big, broad smiles. My grandma was like that. And that is an illustration of Christian hope shining as we walk in the land of the death shadow. 
It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be cracking jokes if you're in the hospital when you're in your 90s. But it does mean that you will have an ultimate light, the ultimate light, to see you through whatever comes, whatever you face. I love the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, and if you're not familiar with it, go home and read it. It shines with hope like few other parts of the Bible. Listen to this. Paul writes, For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, and he's, God says that at the beginning of time, right? God has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. And that's why we never give up. Though outwardly we are wasting away, our bodies are dying, yet inwardly, in our spirits, in our souls, we are being renewed day by day. For our present troubles are small and won't even last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. In the book of Revelation, when God restores the world with the new heavens and the new earth, and death and suffering are no more, there's a strange little detail in there. It says there will not be any sun. What's with that? Well, it's because God and the Lamb, the Lamb who is Jesus, will be the light of the world. The literal light, the spiritual light, the only light we will need. And there will be no darkness. That is our destiny. And we're being told here in Isaiah that God is going to give it to us. A light has dawned. And so God offers hope that is unexpected, and it shines radiantly into the darkness of our lives. In a couple of weeks' time, on Saturday, December the 19th, we're going to have a gathering here in this room and online that we're calling Blue Christmas. Isaiah is honest about the darkness, the struggles we face, the grief we feel, all of the prophets, they tell us the truth, though we would deny it. They invite us to stop in our grief. They lament. And if, if you're, as so many of us are this year, dealing with heaviness of this season, I encourage you to come out for Blue Christmas on that Saturday afternoon. It'll be led by Howard Sullivan, and it will be a time to grieve, a time to lament, which is at the very heart of who we are as Christians. The Bible is full of lament. Our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, even though he is the resurrected one. Maybe most importantly, Christian hope arrives as a gift, and that's a capital G gift as well. We get to the climax of this passage in verses 6 and 7. There's, there's a turn in what we're hearing. There's all these images of war, and then, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It comes out of nowhere, but it's good. That word for tells us that this child is the reason we can have hope. And it's a capital G gift, as we see in the four names he's called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of them point to the truth about Jesus. They're titles that reveal his divinity. 
The child is called mighty God and everlasting father. So he's the source of all creation. And yet he is born. Somehow a child is born who is God. We risk taking that for granted, but there's nothing like this claim in any of the other world religions. This person is obviously human, but he's also obviously God. If you accept that, if you not only agree to that, but if you invite that truth into your life, it will change everything. On the one hand, the child is God, so he can satisfy all our longing for meaning, for beauty, for eternity, for love, and he can truly save us. No one in this world, though we look for saviors here constantly, no one in this world can do that. Only God, who is completely different, above and beyond us, holy like we can't approach, only he can save us. On the other hand, he became human. So you've got a God who understands, a God who has suffered. We don't know why God allows evil and suffering, but it can't be because he doesn't love us. Dorothy Sayers says this so well. She writes that the incarnation, that is God becoming flesh, becoming human, means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall into suffering and be subject to sorrow and death. He nonetheless had the courage to take his own medicine. He himself, he has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it worthwhile. So this gift is unlike any other gift. But it's also just like any other gift because we can't earn it. You have to receive a gift, and you receive this gift most of all by grace. Look at verse 5 for a moment. A great battle is coming. And evil will be defeated, but you aren't going to have to fight it. You won't need army boots. You won't need equipment. You can burn that stuff up. You will not need it. You will receive the victory as a gift. Why? Because someone else is going to do the fighting for you. And Jesus takes that on himself, as Isaiah shows us later in the servant song prophecies that come further on in his book, most of all in chapter 53, where it says, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is the source of evil in the world? I think most of all, it's the sin and self-centeredness of the human heart. We put ourselves first, sometimes in the sneakiest way. And if God had come to deal with us in strength, who could have stood? Who would have made it? 
Instead, he came in weakness. He came as a lamb. He was crucified. He took the punishment we deserve. And you can only receive the hope of his forgiveness as a gift, as a gift of grace. If God had to become human and die for us, that must mean we are in really bad shape. That nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. And so you are not able to get it together on your own, to make it on your own. And as you come to see that, you come closer to the God we find in Jesus Christ. To really receive the gift that he offers, you have to admit that you are a sinner saved by grace and that you need to give up control of your life and give everything over to Jesus. And in that, there is the greatest beauty, the greatest freedom, the greatest peace. And part of that is descending way lower than any of us wants to, let's admit it. And yet we see the greatness of Christ and how far down he came to love us. And we're invited to respond, to descend with him. Our greatness, if it comes at all, will only come that way on the same path. God descended into greatness. The Bible says it's only through repentance that you come into the light. It's only by descending that you will truly become great. So put your hope in Jesus Christ this Advent season. He is the unexpected, radiant gift, the gift of all gifts, the one who comes to make us new, to give us life. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God Almighty, that you come in weakness to get close to us, but at the same time, you are the God of victory. You are the God who fights our battles. And the greatness of your government is that it is a government like no other. And the hope of your peace is that it is a peace that loves its enemies, that does not strike back, that does not cycle in endless violence and strife. And we thank you for the promises that we have received today that, that you will reign on David's throne, upholding it, ruling over the universe with justice and righteousness. Give us more and more the faith that that has come in your son Jesus and that Holy Spirit, you are incorporating us into what you're doing in the world, sending us out. We thank you that Jesus will one day come again to make everything right. And then all will be light and life. We praise you and thank you for that hope. Amen.